Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guest is David Hyam. In his Twitter profile, David describes himself as an exiled Boltonian, ex-academic, member of Hezza's Barmy Army, which he copyrights to the sun, uh, 20 years failing to rebalance the economy, he used to win the odd bike race, and he's a music fan. So welcome to City Talks, David. Yep. So we're getting to get on to a minute around, um, you, you put out a, a Twitter thread uh, not so long ago about some lessons from your time uh, in the regional development policy yep. world. Um, but let me start with a, a slightly different question, which is, what does Michael Heseltine understand about regional development that other politicians don't? Oh, that's a that's a that's a, that's an inter- that's an interesting question. I mean, the reason I put in my Twitter profile about being member of Hess's Barmy Army goes back to the early nineties, when Hesse, uh, when Major won in ninety two. Mm and appointed Hesseltine as Secretary of State in DTI, which Hesseltine, uh, as is his wont, um, immediately retitled uh, to be President of the Board of Trade and, and sent us all uh, messages about how we should address him, etc. Um, and one of the things that Hesseltine did straight away was commit himself to producing a, um, a white paper on improving Britain's competitiveness. Mm. I was the lead economist on the core team charged with uh, producing that uh, white paper. And then having produced the white paper in 96, I joined the recently formed Government Office Northwest in order to deliver the white paper in a regional context. So my my career has been heavily intertwined with with Hesseltine. The Barmy Army reference was that he'd given an interview, or I think he'd appeared before a select committee, where they'd asked him what he wanted to do with the department's economists. And he'd made some um, derogatory remark about uh, economists and the uh, the telegraph had picked this up and put it on the front page on a very slow news day in in august and unfortunately i i was head of the um the first economics division in in dti as you went through alphabetically um so i was the head of economics 1a i think it was but I was also titled, and this is uh, Director of the World Economy. Um, <laughs> that is a very, very good title. It is a very, very good title and completely uh, inaccurate a description of what I did. But you can imagine the Telegraph had great fun uh, on its front page. And then, of course, the Sun picked this up in uh, in an editorial and, and referred to, to Heza's Barmy Army. Um, which was where I, uh, which was where I got the uh, where I got the thing from. Anyway, I digress. So, what what he understood, what what he understands about uh, regional development um, is he's always seen it as something which is about government as a whole, 
rather than a particular department. And that was a very, very strong theme of the um, competitiveness white paper. If you look at my current Twitter profile, I uh, look at it very carefully, you'll see it's actually a T-shirt, which we were all given, uh, listing, I think it's the 12 um, factors underlying, uh, underlying competitiveness. So I have, I have literally been there, done it and got the... Uh, got the t-shirt so that's that's what he's always understood about it yeah. the other thing he's always understood about it is that it depends very much on strong local leadership um and i think that's something that governments have forgotten over the um, over the years actually and i think it's one of the big issues in terms of actually um delivering regional policy that you cannot actually deliver regional policy unless you actually empower local government to uh, to do it and that's probably something we can come on to yeah we'll, we'll definitely come on to that and what just reflect on it because he's come back to this in many occasions i mean he started there in some respects in the in the late 70s when he first very first got into government under the thatcher and udc's and liverpool and such yeah obviously you know your points about the competitive white paper he came back to it again in the in the coalition government, no stone unturned. I mean, he you know he has returned to this on on several occasions. I mean, how would you sort of characterize, I suppose, where the current government is, at least or at least the previous government, maybe on le leveling up? I mean, how would you contrast you know Hesseltine's view, probably best encapsulated now under no no stone unturned, and then the leveling up white paper? I mean, it's both big big documents, you know, with lots in them. But but how would you draw differences and similarities between them at the moment, David? Actually, I think they're very similar. You know, I, I've often thought that Gove could have saved him an awful, himself an awful lot of time simply by rebranding No Stone Unturned. Um, but Hesseltine had always, you know, Hesseltine was always going to be in a difficult position because of his support for Europe. Mm. You know, that has always been one of the consistent themes of his, his time in politics. And, and when Johnson described himself as a Brexit hezer, um, I think Johnson was actually being, I'm tempted to say, unusually accurate. Um, so I don't think there are, in essence, that many differences between where Gove is now and as illustrated in the levelling up white paper and where Hesseltine was in no stone unturned I think I, I think Gove has got a much better analytical framework in the levelling up white paper than than Hesseltine had in no stone unturned but I think in terms of the policy proposals they are I think very similar mm. and, and and to me I mean you know, in one sense that's quite a a disheartening observation because it just seems to me that we, we we keep circling around the big issues in regional policy but never actually seriously engage with them so in your sense then in that scenario is it um which i probably agree with but is it that you know we have a fair sense as to you know what constitutes regional development as as an idea and as a sort of policy framework you know there there will be variations and differences but we broadly know what we're 
you know, what needs to be done, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that, you know, the, the issues really are about seriousness, commitment to the ideas that then fit into that frame and the ability to implement them. It, it, would, would you say that? Is that what well, you think? No, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I would say that is the key lesson that we've, we've learned, or in one sense failed to learn, over the last, you know, last 30 years. Mm. I mean, crudely, um, don't promise what you can't or are unwilling to, uh, to deliver. Yeah. Um, and that's your it, first lesson in your, or your first reflection in your Twitter. There's a, you know, uh, don't promise what you can't deliver. Do you, do, what, I mean, over and above politicians always over promise and invariably under deliver, right? I mean, that we, so we, we take that as a, as a given, but do you think, I mean, part that is part of the issue there that, that um, politicians don't fully appreciate the size and scope of the challenge that regional development you know presents or i mean why is it that they often overpromise and invariably underdeliver what's your view on that david well <laughs> other I, than just being politicians and that's no, just no, no, well do. no it's 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 a good i mean it, it, it it's a good question because one of my you know one of my one of my key lessons in those you know those 10 lessons was that there aren't any simple, quick, or I would say cheap solutions to long-term complex problems. Mm. And politicians like simple, quick solutions. So, so I think one of the big issues is that nobody, no, no politicians have really engaged with the size of the challenge. Mm. Um, and, uh, and I think Johnson actually, in some ways, actually added to the size of the challenge when he started talking about left behind places yeah. and all this issue, all these issues around pride in place. Because if we, you know, if we fail to deliver uh, substantial changes in, in, in conventional indicators like, you know, output, employment, productivity, we, you know, we've really failed to deliver a change in the quality of place, as, as, as you know, as people can see when they when they look around. Um, so I think you know the challenge was big, and Johnson, perhaps inadvertently or perhaps deliberately, actually added to the scale of the added to the scale of the challenge. Yeah. So I think you've got a very you've got a very big challenge. You, you've got a problem that what you need to do will vary over time and by place and what makes it even more complicated is that you know what what works in one place won't necessarily work in another but even what worked in one place in the past doesn't necessarily work in that place in the future so you've got this dynamic process which is actually very difficult for politicians as politicians to engage with, which I think emphasizes a point that um, Giles Wilkes made in a, in a blog about something else the other day, which is the, the role of institutions, that actually, if you want to deliver change, you have to make sure that you, ha you have the institutional framework and the institutional incentives in place 
to actually work through political cycles. Yeah. Because as do you, you think say, that's, politicians are politicians. Yeah. Do you think that's been a bit of a, a, a historical blind spot for those of us that work in regional development, David, the importance of institutions, particularly at the subnational or local level? Very much so. No, absolutely. I mean, I think if, if I were identifying one consistent theme over the last 30 years, it's been the neglect of local government by, by Whitehall. And I, I, I really can't see how you can deliver um, real, let's call it levelling up, unless you engage local people with their local knowledge and unless you have strong local institutions that can actually you know brigade all these different things which influence regional growth together and constantly reinvent themselves in the light of new challenges and, and, and changes um and, and but against that you know successive governments have effectively bypassed or successive Whitehall governments have effectively bypassed local government you know you had Thatcher in the 1980s with urban development corporations you had um, new labor with regional development agencies you've got you had the coalition with local enterprise partnerships they've basically limited the ability of local government to raise revenue whilst at the same time cutting funding and they have tinkered and there's I, I don't think there's a you know a different way of describing it with local government structures and and, and governance yes with the result that you, you you've got a you've got a patchwork quilt of of local government structures you've got confused lines of accountability and you have local government which largely is denuded of strategic strategic capacity to actually address the issues that need addressing mm. so you know if you're going to make it you know if you're going to do one thing that makes a big difference then i would suggest it's actually to look seriously at restoring the power and the capacity of of local government yeah i mean and that touches on i mean one of the other lessons you you draw on which is um you know, you sort of say stop reinventing the wheel, but underneath that, you're really offering a critique of and a frustration with the endless churn, not only of institutional tinkering and tweaking, which you just talked about, but also policy, policy introduction, then policy oh. removal, funding introduction, funding removal, and funding objectives being shifted from, you know, from one year to the next, which again. Uh, bedevils the sort of regional development space and has done again for for quite some time. Oh, but I mean, well, I mean, very much so. I mean, I was, I mean, I was looking at this. Um, I was looking at this earlier, actually, um, and as you say, we've and there are a couple of charts I put in that um, that Twitter thread illustrating this. I mean, we've had this enormous churn of policy initiatives and institutions over the last 30 years take either of those in isolation and they would make make <laughs> delivering real change difficult put them together and and really they're you know potentially fatal 
which I, I fear we've, we, we've observed in, in, in the, the lack of progress. So, you know, and I say stop reinventing the wheel. I mean, we are not short of, of, of examples uh, that we can draw upon in terms of regional development. Now, I mean, I think, you know, I think, and this is my personal view, and I suspect it's a bit controversial, but I, I think we, we've had some good initiatives in urban regeneration. I'd actually include urban development corporations in that. Uh, the, the urban regeneration companies um, were a, an extension, a modification of that. We've had single regeneration budget, which I, I, I still think was a, you know, a tremendous innovation in the 1990s, bringing together multiple different funding streams from different uh, government departments, which then went on to influence uh, the RDA single mm. pop funding. We've had innovations in, in, in institutions. Um, so I would include in that, um, I declare an interest, uh, government offices for the regions, which I think really get quite have quite a poor reputation, and people don't appreciate now um, at the, this distance because they were announced thirty years ago, just how innovative they were and are, because they brought together different government departments. I mean, twelve, I think, at, at, at the end in nine locations across the country uh, under a single management chain. So they were actually addressing um, both the excessive centralization and the excessive departmentalization of the civil service. So that, that was good. I think combined authorities were a, a good institutional innovation. I think we've had interesting innovations in accountability. And the one I would draw attention to there which now is almost completely forgotten, is Gordon Brown's introduction of regional select committees uh, when, he was, when he was prime minister, um, which seemed to me to be the obvious way of improving the link between the executive parliament and, and, and local areas. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, they were boycotted by the Conservatives for political reasons, and they all just fell apart. But actually, they were, I think, something that could well be looked at again. Um, so we've had good examples, you know, unfortunately, and I, I, I think we, we seem determined to not repeat uh, the good examples, but to repeat the bad examples, of which I would include things like enterprise zones and free ports, which we've <laughs> which we've had on many occasions and we keep having without any obvious attempt to learn from why they didn't work on previous occasions. And then we have things like investment zones, which, as I said the other day, seem to be a mashup of, of the worst elements of, of lots of different things. You know, so enterprise zones, free ports, UDCs are in there somewhere. Um, Gordon Brown's innovation zones, which were one of his less successful uh, initiatives, are in there somewhere. So it, it, it's actually very frustrating. And then you get to, you know, the National Audit Office, and I was looking at the, the report they did on, on local funding, and, you know, they actually said 
you know, DLUC has not consistently evaluated its past interventions to stimulate local economies. So it doesn't know whether billions of pounds of public expenditure, of public spending, has had the impact intending. I mean, that is an absolutely damning verdict. You know, yes. when I read that, I mean, I, we knew it, but when you, when you read it in, you know, in cold black and white, as it were, by the by someone such as the NEO, which is very conservative, small C, so. in many respects, it was definitely a head in hands uh, moment for uh, for me, at least when I went, when I actually read through that. Uh, that document and particularly highlighted those sorts of findings is such a such a terrible indictment, really. Oh, yes. I mean, how how can you seriously introduce new policies when you have no idea of the impact they're going to have? And you, you, you haven't actually bothered, I, I would suggest, learn from the impact of, of previous interventions. Yeah. Well, it's a big question, David, but what's your... What's your sort of unifying theory as to the state of play that you've just brilliantly described? I mean, why do why why is it why is it you know what's the why is it that we we go through this institutional uh, change and churn? Why is it that we seem to forget the good things and remember the not so good things? Why is it that we don't really? care very much about how our regional development money is spent you know beyond does it tick a kind of short-term box or a particular issue of the of the moment I mean what's your kind of theory on that is it that you know regional development is a sort of nice to have but it's not a serious discipline it's not a serious bit of you know government and therefore they you know it's not given the due regard that you and I would probably say that it it needs to or or what I mean what's your what's your what's your theory on that well, I, well, I think, I think, I think part of the problem, uh, and and I suppose this is a this is a general theory, is that anything which involves coordination across government is difficult in the British system, and regional development, competitiveness, levelling up, rebalancing, whatever you want to call it, is, you know, the thing that requires action across a, a broad range. Um, so that makes, it, that makes it very difficult for the system to deliver. Yeah, I mean, traditionally, the, the approach to dealing with the cross-cutting issue is to basically group as many elements of it as you can in one department um, and hope that solves most of the problem. And to a degree, we've done that at the moment with, with DLOC. Uh, but we did it in the past with the office of Deputy Prime Minister under Prescott. Uh, we actually did it when Heseltine was president of the Board of Board of Trade. So you've got that, but you always need that cross-Whitehall coordination. And there I think it, it you know it, it, it comes back to who in the political system can tell other ministers what to do. And really, the only person who can do that is the prime minister mm. uh, or potentially a very powerful deputy prime minister stroke, very powerful member of the ruling party. Yeah. So you can you know, you can see that with with Heseltine, with his competitiveness initiative back in the 90s, because whilst he was perfectly happy to deliver it via DTI, 
when he had the opportunity to become Deputy Prime Minister, he took that opportunity and he took the competitiveness work with him as Deputy Prime Minister. I suppose the, 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 the other parallel, and this is going back a, a long time, would be uh, Wilson in, in 1964 with the Department of Economic Affairs and with George Brown, who was actually, you know, despite his subsequent, well, indeed, and his reputation at the time, was a very powerful politician and effectively um, Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, so if there was one person who could have delivered uh, in those days the cross-cutting growth agenda, it would have been somebody like Brown. Um, coming back to the, you know, coming more up to date, you know, somebody like Mandelson was able to do some of this under, under Blair and Brown. Um, possibly Gove under uh, Sunak, under, under Johnson. But it's, it's, it's actually very difficult. So unless you actually have the prime minister who is prepared to devote the time to delivering it, I think things tend to fall apart. But of course, prime ministers aren't in a position to deliver particular policies because that's in, not in the nature of the job. So, so I think there is, a, I think there is a, a sort of systemic institutional issue here about how you deal with, how you deal with cross-cutting policies and i guess made more difficult in part because of the very way that um our state is structured with a lot of power responsibility and resources held by the center relative to the to what's held at the the local level it does require central government to be very 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 much at the forefront of this agenda otherwise uh, unlike in other countries where essentially the states or the the local system can really pick up the slack if central government doesn't really get itself organised in this country, then not very much happens. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree with that. And I think that's where it goes back to the question about local government. I think the other observation on that is in, ter in, in terms of the British state, um, we have a very powerful centre, which is actually very poorly resourced. So you look at number 10, potentially number 10 and the cabinet office are incredibly powerful in the British system, but they actually don't have any resources. Their power is their ability to influence individual departments because it's the individual departments that actually hold the power in the, in the, in the system. Yeah. And we're in this space. We'll move on in a second, but just your view on, again, you know, based on your long experience, but your view on, the Treasury's role in all of this, David? You know, they're often held up as being, the, you know, the problem and, you know, the reason why good stuff doesn't happen. And obviously there's a degree of truth in that, although I think it's slightly overplayed in, in some respects from my own view. But but your view on the, you know, the, the Treasury and their view, their role and their view on this, does, how does that influence what we're trying to achieve at the regional development? Well, I, I think, I mean, I think it, I think it's, it's, it, it's an important question, and it's a you know it's a tricky question, and that's sort that's sort of why I referred to Wilson, Brown, and the the Department of Economic Affairs because that that came up then when the you know conventional wisdom is that the Treasury basically 
ensured that the Department of Economic Affairs was never going to was never going to work. Um, like you, I think I think the idea of the the Treasury being a, a dampener on innovation in the British state is is much overplayed. Uh, it, it's overplayed because it's self evidently not true when you look at chancellors like Lawson, Brown and Osborne, who use the Treasury very clearly to, to drive their agenda. So, so I think, you know, in some ways it's, it's a question about politics and political balance hmm. that um, I, I suppose you could argue, well, if you really want to deliver levelling up, then what you need is a, is a chancellor who is engaged with this. And perhaps these things ought to be driven from the Treasury. But then you, you, you think, well, well, hang on, you know, if the Treasury is actually responsible for, you know, the public finance, etc., then do you really want to be bolting something major like that onto its, onto its responsibilities? And then you go back to this question about how you actually coordinate activity. And I suppose the sad fact is, the sad truth is that the Treasury, because it has control of the finances, is always going to have, in some ways, the final say. And we do know, or at least we feel fairly confident, you make, a, make this point in, your, in one of the, uh, the points that you're, you're making in the sense of looking at the end, the Northwest Development Agency's budget relative to the size of the the economy that it's trying to influence. But the point you're really making is, you know, given the nature of the problems and or the challenges that we're trying to grapple with in regional development, both very big and long-term and structural for certain, they aren't going to be dealt with quickly, as you say, but they're not going to be dealt with cheaply either. You know, we should see it as investment, I think, rather than just one-off expenditure. I think there are returns to be, to be garnered and to be marshaled over time, but it does require public investment even if that crowds in quite a bit of private investment at certain points there will still be a big role for big chunks of private uh, public in investment and so I don't know a part of it is then being serious about the scale of the public investment required in order to seize some of the material change that we would want to see happen well it, it, well exactly I mean that's why I said cheaply and why, why I said don't promise something that you can't or aren't prepared to deliver because these things don't come cheap and we've all you know we've always tried to deliver them on the you know on, on, on the cheap in the past i mean the figure for for nwda was it what 400 million was their budget at the the height of their you know their influence northwest economy 120 billion you know that's that's a, you know that's a hell of a lot of leverage you're you're, you're exerting there um and I mean, the, the, the figure which is, is often quoted is the figure from the 2070 Commission about um, the lessons from German reunification and the idea of spending 15 billion a year over, I, I think I got the figure wrong actually, I think it's 15 billion a year over 20 years, not, not 15 years. Um, but coincidentally, this morning, I just had a, a look at my copy of No Stone Unturned, and I was reminded that that Hesseltine had actually proposed in No Stone Unturned a single pot budget of forty nine billion pounds over four years. Now that's 
you know, okay, and that's 10 billion a year. So it it's it's a bit less than the 2070 commission, but it's still a lot of money. And not surprisingly, that was one of the recommendations he made in No Stone on Turn, which the coalition didn't pick up on. No. Because that fit that 49 billion was a result of top slicing departmental budgets. But yes. it, it it this costs money. Yeah. You know, it costs a lot of money. It requires some big institutional changes. One of the other areas you, you've touched on both now, but also in um, on the thread as well, is the uh, the importance of the government offices. And you make a sort of comment about, you know, at, at various times we had it under Labour and obviously now we've got it under the coalition or we had it under the coalition now under the Conservatives. Yeah, the the dispersal of government activity to different parts of the you know the country for a variety of different reasons, and we've done this, you know, in the past. But again, just say a little bit about why it is you think that the government offices was a good idea. You know, what was it that they were ultimately able to do? And would you would you reintroduce them? I guess with some modifications, but would you reintroduce them now? Is that is there still a merit for them? Yes. Well, I, th- I would I, I would reintroduce them. You know, I wouldn't go for what we had. I mean, partly because we can't have what we had because the situation is is very different. Um, I, I think they're very important in terms of getting a better understanding in Whitehall of what is happening on the ground. In this case, in England, because they were only in England. So what, why did they, what did they do? Why did they work? Well, basically what they did initially was bring together the regional operations of four government departments, which were, you know, the, you know, the particular departments, the designation are lost in the midst of time, but they were broadly, you know, DTI, environment, skills, and a little bit of transport. Uh, and then over time, other departments were added to them, uh, most notably uh, the Home Office. There was very substantial uh, Home Office contingent and also actually math as was, had a very big contingent in the government offices. So what they were doing was actually bringing together several different groups of um, white or civil servants in particular places. So we were all based in the places that we dealt with. So we, you know, we were experiencing life in the Northwest, the frustrations of Northern transport in the same way as everybody, you know, everybody else. Um, but they also, we were also brought together under a single management chain. So, as a DTI member of staff, I didn't necessarily report to a DTI senior officer. I mean, for a large part of my time in Government Office Northwest, I was reporting to somebody from what these days would be the Communities Department or, or, or DLUC. Hmm. Um, so that was challenging for Whitehall because it meant that traditional Whitehall departmental rivalries had to be sort of internalized uh, so that the offices the offices could work together. So 
that's what they were and that's what they did they you know they enabled us to they enable Whitehall to understand what was happening on the ground I mean I used to say to my my, my teams that our USP was who we know and what we know um, because we were able to um, say to Whitehall well yes what you need to understand about the politics in this area is X. What you need to understand about the economics in this area is Y. Um, and we were able to say to our, you know, our, our, our uh, partners in the region, this is the way Whitehall is thinking on, you know, on these issues. So I, 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 I still feel that we, we, we did a, a pretty good job. Um, I mean, I think we got far too um, tied up in controlling and monitoring local government, which was, I think, why uh, the government's offices ended up being abolished by mm. the coalition. Because the interesting thing about the government offices was, although they were established by Major, Blair and Brown kept them and actually expanded them. But unfortunately, Blair and Brown kept them and expanded them because it was part of their desire to exercise more central control. So you, you, I think you, it's about having a presence in parts of England, but having a presence in different parts of England and having a presence for more than one department. So if you take, you know, Deloc going to Wolverhampton, you know, that's great for Wolverhampton. But, you know, I'm not sure that DLUC are going to learn very much about um, the issues that concern them by having a team based in Wolverhampton. I think the Treasury Darlington campus is a much more interesting innovation, partly because it includes the Treasury and the department that was always the most iffy about the government's office network was the Treasury. Yeah. Um, and also because it includes more than the Treasury on the campus. What, I, what I've never been clear about is quite who runs the campus and quite who controls the civil servants there. You know, does, is the Treasury exercising management control over whatever it's called these days, BAS um, civil servants who, mm. are, who are there, or the, you know, the trade civil servants who are there? I don't know. But the other point I would make is, well, you know, it's great for Darlington to have them there. And I'm sure that, you know, the Treasury will, will, will find out an awful lot more about issues in the northeast from having them in Darlington. But they're not going to find out any more about issues in somewhere like Blackpool than if they simply stayed in, in Whitehall. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is a very good, that that, is a very that, good point. And, and dispersing different bits of government to different parts of the country actually in some respects makes that ability to integrate and coordinate probably more difficult right I mean since rather than uh, rather than not in, uh, because they are dispersed to different parts of the country well if, and, and even when they even when they're dispersed to you know campuses or hubs simply dispersing a group of civil servants from different departments, to one physical location doesn't actually alter the way in which those civil servants operate. Yeah. You no, know, it's, that, a, it's that, a triumph yeah. of faith over experience, actually. 
Yeah, no, quite. Um, I want to get your views on another issue. You talked a little bit about local, well, talked quite a bit about local government and its current sort of position and status. Uh, I want to get your thoughts. Again, I've heard uh, Michael Hesslin talk a lot about um, the missed opportunities in relation to Redcliffe mode. And oh, you've yes. commented on this as well. You know, if he could do one, well, not maybe if he could do one thing, he would do to do that. But he does, he, he is still a fan of that uh, set of proposals that were put forward um, back in the day. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. But I suppose a bigger question about you know, local government, we need to improve it. But we do we need to reform it as well? And it, and in... And in what way would what way would you reform it? If oh, well, it's it's. I mean, that's a. I mean, that's a tricky. Yeah, that's a tricky question because I was listening. I was listening to a a, a talk that Colin Talbot gave um, about local government um, a few weeks ago, uh, where Colin was saying that he was thinking that you might actually want to move to smaller units of local government, but with more power rather than the current trend, which is towards larger units of local government, which are much more remote from, from people. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a, you know, that's a, a really important um, debate to be had, um, because what we have at the moment is we have local government, which in many ways is simply acting as a delivery agent for central government uh, policies. So there actually isn't very much link, link between, um, if you like, local democracy, local accountability, and what actually happens in, in a place. Uh, Colin was particularly talking about prisons policy there, where prisons are increasingly large, or, you know, institutions which are dispersed into the countryside, rather than being, you know, in part of, you know, part of communities. So I think that's, I, I think that's one, one, one one big issue. Um, I think the the other the other big issue, and I and this is the, the element of Redcliffe Maud, which doesn't get a lot of attention, is the what might be termed the missing layer of of, of subnational government, and that is something at the the regional level, because there are lots of things which certainly can't be delivered. Uh, even at the metro mayor level, arguably can't be delivered or can only be delivered with difficulty at the regional level and actually need to be delivered at a, a level higher than that. So transport would be one. We transport for the, the north as, a, as an example. But a lot of the stuff around climate change, around housing policy, around um, environmental policy operates at a level that we don't actually have at the moment in in, in terms of um, in in terms of of local government, and in some ways I think that the trend towards metro mayors has probably made the case for um, let's call it regional government for the sake of argument actually hard, harder rather than easier. Um, because it would potentially involve taking powers from metro mayors and giving them to somebody else. Um, and that's always been the problem with local, with local government reorganisation. Somebody always loses out, which is why, of course, Redcliffe Maud 
never got uh, never got implemented in the first place. Uh, so, so sorry, I, 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 departing from your original question. So, I, I don't know what the optimum structure of local government is um, in England because, again, this is an English issue. I think Redcliffe Maud is is isn't a bad starting point in terms of structures. And again, if you look in no stone unturned, you'll find two diagrams in there, uh, or two maps. One is of Redcliffe Maud's proposals. And one is for the LEP areas. And lo and behold, they're, they're actually not too dissimilar. So the, there's, the, there's an argument to, to, to be had about that. What, what, what I don't think makes sense is the tinkering that we've seen over the, you know, the last you know, few decades in terms of um, local government structure. And the example I always quote in that is, is Lancashire, mm. where in the mid nineties, um, they carved out uh, two relatively small unitaries in, you know, in Blackpool and Blackburn with Darwin from the much bigger county, which remained, which never made any sense to me at the time and nothing that's happened since has, has, has made it make any more sense, for the, if only for the simple reason that Blackpool's economic hinterland is entirely controlled by the council, as is Blackburn's economic hinterland. So you can't get a strategic engagement on local economic development if you have that institutional structure. No, quite. Oh, well, you know, in, in our some of our work, we've shown, if I remember the right numbers, right? If you look at the sort of Nottingham uh, built up area stroke sort of travel to work area, there are about 13 different local authorities of, you know, in the various tiers that all have a bit of jurisdictional responsibility for, you know, for essentially one labour market. And, you know, that doesn't strike me as being the most optimum way to, to organise decision-making over, you know, on issues that really do have a, a fundamental effect on people's, you know, quality of life and everyday uh, experiences, for example. No, I mean, it was it, it, absolutely. And the, the, the other classic uh, example of that is the um, local government structure in the Oxford-Cambridge arc, which is immensely complicated. And there's a there's a there's a very useful diagram I think in the in in, in one of the government publications um, demonstrating how complex it is, with which I think is wasn't the the purpose of the <laughs> illustration, but it, it <laughs> but is actually the reality on the on the ground. Yeah. But I think the other thing I, the other thing I I think we we have to be careful about is also um, tinkering with governance structures. Um, now, you know, I can understand the arguments for elected mayors, but I, I, I still think there is a, you know, there is a, an intellectual contradiction in talking about devolution and then saying you have to have a mayor. Um, if you're going to devolve to local government, I, I would suggest that you actually need to allow local government to choose the form of governance that it thinks is most effective in its area um, because uh, again I think there is a there's a real danger 
in effectively pushing what is, what is tantamount to a, a presidential model on local government yeah. that we don't have in in Whitehall. And it's not, you know, it's not just the uh, the Conservatives who've been doing this. I mean, because Labour were, were were just as prone to this. Yeah. Because I think it was Labour who introduced the idea of the uh, the cabinet system in 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 in, in local governments. Yeah. So, but but I do think that Whitehall tinkers in local government structures and governance at its peril. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Um, let's begin to move to a close. I get your thoughts on two areas, David. First one is, you know, for those of us that uh, you and I included that are really focused on regional development in the broad sense and wanting to see it progress and develop, um, are, there, are there big arguments? Are there big points that we haven't yet made that we need to make? You know, is there a sort of intellectual... Uh, challenge or or is it really a political and uh, choices challenge? That's my kind of first question. And I suppose my second one is, you know, in an, in an ideal world, what we may be two years out from a, an election, what should we be looking for over the next two years to see whether uh, a prospective Labour or a prospective Conservative government maybe, you know, are, are interested and focused on this? So take the first one first. In a sense, are there, are there things that we haven't done or the case we haven't made that would make do you think would make a material difference to how important regional development is taken by any government of the day or do you think we've done all the thinking um it's just a political question or political issue i think we have done the thinking i don't think we are short of experience of what works and what doesn't work in regional development. I think we are short of political willingness to take it forward. And I think, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I, I do think that we are neglecting the importance of strong local institutions. And we do not have strong local institutions at the at the moment and i think that that would be something which would change the dialogue the delivery the effectiveness of regional policy if we could agree on a set of organizations that would exist beyond the lifetime of a single government and we could agree a system of funding which also existed beyond the lifetime of a single government, then we would have actually moved forward in a meaningful way and, and, and actually stand a, ch a chance of, of, of making things better in the future than they have been in the, in the past. Yeah, and, and you're, that's a very good point. And in the short run, are there any telltale signs that may come along in the next 24 months that give us some hint as to some of these bigger issues being taken seriously in the next in the next parliament and beyond? Well, I think there are, I think, I think there are two there are two different questions there actually. I, I think there is one question is what we would expect the remaining two years 
of the, this administration to deliver. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question because I would be very surprised if they did anything other than throw a little bit of money at highly visible cosmetic projects uh, to make places look better. You know, so effectively, after, you know, after 12 years of Conservative government, does your town look better or worse than it did previously? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I suspect the political payback for that comes in, in you know, in terms of um, some high profile uh, local initiative uh, rather than some underlying fundamental change in institutional structures. Mm. Uh, I think what's very important here is what Labour does in this this area. And I haven't been paying enough attention to what Labour have been saying. I mean, I saw that Lisa Nandy had, had, had written the book and I've not actually had a chance to uh, uh, read that yet. But faced with... Um, restrictions you know budgetary restrictions which we're all you know familiar with it seems to me that regional policy and some fundamental change in the way in which we organize the relations between central and local government would be not well it's not exactly a zero cost way of moving forward it would it would be something that signaled a change from the past and actually potentially delivered taking back control yes. um you know which in political terms seems to me to be very important because you know what, what have we learned from the past few years it's that um you know it's what's called the revenge of the left behind places people have felt disempowered so let's think about how we would give people more power uh, to actually shape their lives so so i think that would be what i would be looking for from a future labor administration and in some ways there's a you know there's a throwback to 97 there you know with with the introduction of rdas with the proposal to have elected regional assemblies which of course fell at the first hurdle uh, and with de devolution to you know England Wales and the creation of the the mayor in London, so that the, there is there is a precedent for that type of constitutional change. So I I would be, you know, I I'd be very interested to see what Labour does with the Brown review. Very uh, good, an optimistic uh, note uh, and view to <laughs> to finish on. Uh, my guest today has been David Hyam. David, thank you for being part of City Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the Centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the Centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner, used with permission and all rights are reserved.